The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. Well, it is good, good for us to be together this morning. Um, we get to come together each week around God's Word, and we're picking back up this morning in Matthew. Uh, We've been walking through this Matthew series, and we're in this thematic section in Matthew of chapters 12 and 13, which presents before us a question of how we will respond to Christ and the consequences of those choices. And I actually, as I've been preparing these four messages that have all been linked together, I shifted our message to... this morning from what it was originally scheduled to be next week from the, ne- the, the logical flow of our text, but because this morning's message is one that's hard to hear, and I didn't think it was necessarily an appropriate one for our one-year celebration to be uh, taking in together next week, so we are jumping ahead a little bit in Matthew uh, so that we can consider together this morning the, the coming judgment of God for sin and the reality of his wrath. And though the end of our message, we get to hold on to and hold out the most glorious hope for any of us as human beings, reconciliation with God, eternity spent enjoying his blessed glory, the message of this week is ultimately not an easy one to hear. Like last week's message, our message this morning serves primarily as a warning. 22 years ago this month, two passenger airliners flew into the World Trade Centers. One flew into the Pentagon and one crashed in Stony Creek Township, PA. For those who were alive and old enough to remember, 9-11 was a terrifying day. We saw images of human beings hanging out of windows, a hundred stories in the air, jumping to escape the heat. Two massive towers crumbling in clouds of apocalyptic smoke. And we heard as the death toll climbed into the thousands with innumerable others Injured and injuries still lingering to this day. I recently rewatched President Bush's speech from that evening that he made to the American people. He conveyed his deep sorrow. He reminded the American people that they had just looked evil in the face. And then he concludes by saying, The search is underway for those who are behind these evil acts. I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. Whatever your feelings may be on the approach of that justice sought and the ensuing war, I think it would be safe to say that no one was hoping for ambivalence following that event. One way or another, people wanted those responsible found and brought to justice in the face of such horror and evil. It's because that's the human inclination. 
We just experienced a multi-week manhunt for an escaped killer. And this is the fact that we see the story that we see repeated over and over again in a just and civil society. None of us want to know that an unreformed killer is on the loose. And all of us have an innate understanding that payment must be made for wrongs that have been done. This is because we're made in the image and likeness of God, who is perfectly just and stands as judge of us all. Yet, though we want to see the killer pay and the wrongdoer get theirs in the end, we don't like the thought that God could possibly do the same to us someday for the wrongs that we have done. Now, as sinners who have rebelled against God, it makes sense that we would have an aversion to His judgment. But what I hope we'll see this morning is that God is not unjust, that we are far worse than we realize And that the wrath of God as expressed in the eternal judgment of hell is a theological reality that actually helps us when we understand it. It instills in us a healthy fear of God and it also reminds us that God will make all things right in the end. All injustices will be called to account. And for those who have trusted in Christ Jesus, this is a comfort And for those who have yet to, this is a solemn warning. I sat down again with this message last night, just intending to look it over, and wound up being up till one in the morning working on it again. And I pray that the Lord helps us all as we seek to understand His Word. So please open with me now, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13 where we'll be doing, again, a little bit of a jumping around. So we've skipped some of the verses in chapter 12 that we left off with last week, but we'll return to those next week, and we'll consider what it looks like to have a heart that receives Christ rather than refuse Him. But for this week, we consider the outcome for the heart that persists in refusing Christ. So we're reading a few different sections here. We're going to read 13... 24 to 30, and then 36 to 43, and then 47 to 50. So let me pray for us before we read. Father, we ask that you send your spirit. Lord, there are many things about you that are easy and joyful to hear and receive, and then there are things about reality and about your character that in our fallen nature in our finite abilities to understand are hard for us to comprehend. And this is one of the things this morning that is hard for us to comprehend. And so we ask by the power of your spirit that you would move and affect our hearts. Help us to understand the goodness of your justice and the glory of your personhood. Help us to marvel at the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. And I pray you be with me and guide my words as we walk through your word today together. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. 13, 
First, we begin with 24 to 30. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in the gathering the weeds you root up and the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. We jump to 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. And we jump now to verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full... Men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. I started into a book last week on the topic of hell, I had to put it down, not because I couldn't handle the subject matter, but because I could not stomach the tone of the author writing the book. The way that hell was being discussed lacked a weight and a seriousness that the topic deserved. He used jokes. He sought to be quippy and edgy, all of which I found to be terribly irreverent. John Piper said in one of his Ask Pastor John's, whenever I'm asked a question about hell, I always feel the need to take a deep breath, so to speak, and step back and make sure that we are not handling this reality in a breezy, easy, superficial, cavalier way. I agree with that. He goes on to say that as believers, we can err by thinking about hell too little And too much. Too little, he says, would mean that it rarely comes into your mind and therefore has no effect upon your life. But he says it's also unhelpful to think of hell too much. He says, I don't think the human mind and heart are equipped in this fallen world 
to think for long periods of time on the reality of hell. God has a mind and a heart that can keep this reality in focus and in proportion to other realities so that it does not affect him. I don't think our minds and our hearts in this age can properly ponder such horrors for very long. We need glimpses? Yes, we do. We need reminders? Yes. But we don't need continual consciousness of sufferings too great to endure. Again, I agree. Jesus, as we will see in the Gospels, warned often of the judgment to come. This should be on our minds. And the descriptions that he gives are horrible. Yet, they leave much to the imagination. He doesn't give us a lot of detail. And I think that's because our minds can't conceive of it, and we couldn't even handle the full reality of it at present if it could be conceived. Our faith is weak. Our view of our own sinfulness is low. Our view of the holiness of God is insufficient, and so God gives us what we can handle. And so my prayer this morning is that if we don't already have a proper view of hell that we would begin to, that we would think rightly and often enough about hell that it would help us to see the worth of God, the seriousness of our own sin, and would motivate us to tell others of Christ that they might receive Him. And my greatest hope is that if you are here this morning and you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that these stark warnings would stir your soul to fear the judgment that awaits you in death and lead you to the life that is offered in Christ Jesus. So with that, let's consider now our text we just read. Our passage this morning gives us two parables, the parable of the weeds and the parable of the net. The parable of the weeds gives us this picture of a sower who sows some seed and then he leaves. In the meantime, while his workers are asleep, and I don't think that's in the parable, any indictment on the workers. It's just, it's nighttime, they're sleeping. So while they're asleep, an enemy comes and sows some weed among the wheat to ruin the crop. This likely refers to a weed called darnel. It looks very similar to wheat until they reach the maturation stage. It's poisonous to eat and it's very ruinous for a crop. The workers then see the weeds as the plants begin to bear grain, and they ask the master if he'd like them to rip out the weeds. The master says no, because in so doing, they would likely do damage to the good wheat. The best and safest approach was to let both grow up together, and then once they are mature, cut them at the stalks where they can be sorted out more clearly. We then see the harvest time, the good wheat being stored in the barn, and the weeds being gathered up to be burned. We then get this similar image of a net being cast into the water and fish of all kinds filling this net. Then after the net is full, the workers pull out the net and sort the damaged, the poisonous, the unclean fish out from the good and throw the bad fish away. We get a lengthy explanation here of the parable of the sower, and we get a shorter explanation of the parable of the net. But I think the explanation of the parable of the sower really helps us to grasp both of these. And we see that from 36 to 43. Jesus says that he, the Son of Man, is the sower. 
He's sowing the good seed of the kingdom. He's making known the gospel. The field is the world. It's everybody, everything, receiving the message. And the good seed are those who take and receive the message of the kingdom and bear fruit. The weeds, then, are the enemies of God. And as we discussed last week, that means anybody who refuses God, which is all of us, and then who refuses to repent in the face of the offering of grace and salvation from Jesus Christ. And they stand then with the enemy, who is the devil or Satan. The time of growing is our present age, and the harvest is the age to come, which begins with the end of this age when mankind will face the judgment of God as he brings this current earth to an end and deals with evil and sin once for all. We're told he will send out his angels to gather people to himself Will he throw all sin and all lawbreakers into the fiery furnace of hell? And the righteous he will gather into his kingdom. There are many things that we learn here in this passage. One of the big themes is that our current age won't be perfect. So long as the message goes forth, the enemy will continue to work against it. Right up until the Lord returns evil will be working right alongside of good. At times, the working of the enemies of God will be so deceptive, it will be hard to discern who is who and what is what. We need the Lord's help for discernment. It also shows the Lord's patience in wishing that none be cut off too soon and wanting to assure the full amount of His people are brought in. He delays this coming judgment. It's also a comfort to those who have trusted in Christ that justice will be done, that wrongs will be righted, that Christ gets the victory in the end over all of those who attack his people, who malign his name and reject his holy presence. These are all glorious things that we gain from these parables. But the emphasis given in Christ's explanation of the first parable and the second seems to be Not on those things, but on the reality of the judgment. These are warning parables, both for the believer and the non-believer alike, of what it means if we persist in having a heart that rebels against God and refuses Christ Jesus. And so we get this picture of the fiery furnace and the place of the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And since the Lord focuses his explanation of these parables on the reality of judgment, we have to take time this morning to consider that together. As challenging and as uncomfortable as it can be to think about, we must. So we're going to look at three things this morning about hell, that it is eternal, that it is separation from God, And that it is torment. So first, it is eternal. As we said, both of these parables point towards the great judgment. The sorting that will take place at the end of this current age. As we head into the age to come. And Christ, the New Testament writers, and the Old Testament scriptures together make clear that this age to come is 
the final age, and it is forever. It's the final act of redemptive history of mankind. It's a final act that has no end. All human beings will exist forever. That was God's original design and intent. And though eternal life does not happen on this earth at present because of our sin, we continue to exist beyond the grave. Those who have trusted in Christ for salvation will one day experience a new life in a perfect world forever in the glorious presence of God, but those who have persisted in their rebellion towards God will enter into the eternal judgment. But this idea of the eternality of punishment is understandably a significant stumbling block for many people. Because of that, many objections are raised to the eternality of and even the existence of hell itself, sometimes even by those who are or claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. There's two popular movements in our day among some Christian circles that try to solve what they see as the problem of hell. One that I would say is completely incompatible with the gospel is universalism, which denies any judgment and believes that in the end all people will be saved regardless of their refusal to turn to God. But another view is annihilationism, which I think is the more likely temptation for students of God's word which says that there's a judgment, but it's, it's not eternal, and in the end, God's enemies simply cease to exist. It's understandable why some would want this to be true, but the fact is that the Scriptures don't allow for either of those positions. And both of those positions degrade the holiness and goodness and justice of God. As we said, the scriptures make clear our existence is eternal. We see even in the Old Testament allusions to eternal existence beyond this present experience. Though they had a very ill-conceived version of that, yet the Lord hadn't unveiled these things. One of the more explicit examples is Daniel chapter 12 when he says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This picture becomes even more clear in the New Testament that there is a day in which all people will be resurrected from the dead. God designed that we would be embodied people. Heaven won't just be us floating around on clouds and playing harps. We'll have bodies and a new earth like this one, but perfect and better. And so we get this picture of the resurrection of the dead in which God returns the souls of all people who have died back into resurrected bodies. And on that day, there will be the great judgment where some go to eternal life and some to what the book of Revelation calls the second death. But just as death now is not the end of our existence, this second death is also not non-existence for those who experience it. We read in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, that the second death is the lake of fire. This matches Matthew's description here of the fiery furnace. We also read in verse 10 of that same chapter that the devil, 
will one day be thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. These are imageries. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the second death is the lake of fire, verse 14. And the lake of fire is where Satan and the false prophet and the beast who is the Antichrist were thrown in verse 10. And in the lake of fire, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the second death is not non-existence. But this goes on. It's not just Satan and the false prophet and the beast who are thrown there. We read in verse 15 that anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life will also be thrown in the lake of fire. The conclusion is unavoidable. Hell is an eternal experience. But this conclusion, again, is a hard pill to swallow. And so other questions get raised. Some say the eternal punishment does not fit the crime. We only sin on earth for 80 years or so. How then can we be punished forever? Well, there's two issues with this thought. First, it presupposes that one ceases to sin in the time to come The reality is the heart that's being judged for being in rebellion against God will be in rebellion against God in the moment of that judgment, thus requiring a new moment of judgment and further punishment. Eternal punishment is fitting for a heart that refuses God because that heart will eternally refuse God. After this life, no unrepented person will ever seek to repent of their sins. But even beyond that, and I would say greater than that, and more God-glorifyingly than that, is that people are right. Punishment must fit the crime. But we don't understand the crime. We don't give life in prison if a person kills a mouse. But we do give life in prison if they kill a human. We don't give life in prison if a person for years on end is laundering money But we do give life in prison if in 30 seconds someone takes the life of another human being. The duration of the crime is not ultimately what matters. The severity of the crime is what matters and the worthiness of the one against whom the crime has been committed. God is holy beyond our imaginations. God is good beyond our wildest imaginations. God is so mind-blowingly great beyond our wildest imaginations that to take even one small step in rebellion against Him, as Adam and Eve did and as we all have done in our sin, is to earn for us eternal damnation because He is infinitely worthy. God is eternally glorious, and so spurning Him is an eternal crime. When we think, I haven't done that much wrong, I'm a good person, surely God will accept me, hell's where the really bad people go. When we think these things, we're unaware of the holiness of God and the depravity of our own sin. We compare ourselves against to each other when we really should be comparing ourselves against God. And when we do that, when we compare ourselves rightly against God, we see that it is a miracle, not a right, that any of us should be saved. 
God has been amazingly patient with a people who have trampled and abused his good creation, who live off his undeserved grace and yet continue to reject him. Paul says in the book of Romans, talking about all of humanity, so they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Though we live in God's world, made by Him, we suppress the truth. We suppress the truth about Him and we do not give Him thanks. And then he sent his son to us. And what did we do then? The Gospel of John tells us the true light, that's Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. When God sent His Son to His created world, to the people who were made in His image, what did they do? They killed Him. Each time we sin, we betray God and say that we don't care who Jesus was and what He did. Our sin says to God, I don't want you in my life. Every evil deed we do. Every evil thought we think, every wicked intention of our hearts, every careless inaction, all of it stores up for us wrath. We will be held accountable for each and everything unless we are in Christ who's taken that for us. Hell is the just response to an eternally rebellious people. I can understand why we want to avoid the thought of hell being forever. It's a hard thing. But it is what the scriptures teach. And it is what is just. And the truth of it helps us further grasp the infinite glory and worth of our God. And it safeguards us from turning against him. And that takes us to the second thing we see about hell. That it is separation from God. I won't linger on this point as our next point ties very closely into this one. But when a person is in hell, they are separated from God. Now, we have to understand, though, exactly what that separation means. God is omnipresent, meaning that wherever we go in all of existence, God is there. God has made all that exists. And God is present, in a sense, to uphold all created things. So without the sustaining presence of God, hell could not exist. One of the most popular misconceptions about hell is that Satan is the one who runs it. That is false. Satan does not run or own hell. We read earlier in Revelation that one day Satan and all evil forces will be among those in eternal chains of hell forever, experiencing the torment of its fires. No, God is sovereign over hell, not Satan. Revelation 14.10 says that all who reject God and worship the Antichrist will 
drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Hell is not a total absence of God. Hell is, in fact, the place of God's pure, unadulterated wrath. If God is perfect, if God is holy, if God is just, then he must take up the cause of justice. And there is no one else who can take up that cause other than he. He is the judge. So in that way, those in hell are in the presence of God, but it's in the presence of God's wrath. But in another way, those in hell are very much not in his presence. In speaking of the judgment, 2 Thessalonians reads, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, meaning who reject him, again, Romans says we're all without excuse, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Our passage this morning shares the same idea. The righteous, verse 43, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The implication being that the unrighteous will not be shining and will not be in the kingdom or presence of God. Throughout scripture, there's a clear understanding that while God is omnipresent, there's a way in which God can be present to uphold and sustain the created order, but there's also a way in which God can be uniquely present to bless. When you are in hell, you are removed from the presence of God in that sense. He is in no way there to bless. He's only present to pour out his wrath. And none of us want to experience that. And that leads us to our last point. And this is the hardest point to get through as we let the weight of all of this settle on us. But hell is torment. Most people have, as we've said, a very low view of the holiness of God. And thus have a very low view of hell. I've heard many people joke about it. And how they wouldn't mind going to hell instead of heaven because they think it'll be a better time in hell. Heaven's stuffy. Hell's going to be a party. That's an absolute absurdity. Nobody would willingly make the decision to go to hell if they rightly understood it. Don't get me wrong. We all make the decision to reject God willingly. But just because we make the decision to overeat doesn't mean we're desirous to be overweight. Just because we desire to smoke doesn't mean we're desirous to have lung cancer. So just because we desire to binge without consequences and sin without repercussion does not mean we want to feel those consequences. So in that way, the heart that refuses God chooses the rejection of him, yes, but there will be no human soul that actually thinks this is where I want to be right now. They still won't want God. They'll have no desire to repent, but they certainly won't want to be where they are either. The eternal thought will be, I want this to end. But the terrifying thing is, unlike on this earth, where there always remains a glimmer of hope 
in that place, absolutely no hope remains. There will be no rest, no thought to cling to for comfort, only a total and utter inescapable understanding that the torment will never end. And what of that torment? Some people like to say, well, the whole fire and sulfur thing is only a metaphor. There won't actually be any fire. To that I say, perhaps the Bible does use metaphor and imagery in describing the age to come, yet what's the purpose of metaphor? To help explain the unexplainable. To help grasp concepts too big to grasp. If hell is not actually fire, that's no relief to anybody. It will be something akin to the pain and torment that would be felt if you were in a fiery furnace. The metaphor is no escape. The descriptions that we get of hell are weeping and gnashing of teeth, unquenchable thirst, utter darkness, destruction, nagging worms that never die, and unending torment. It seems, in fact, that the metaphors only serve to show that the actual reality is beyond anything we can grasp, and it's only through this accumulation of word images that we can begin to describe it. I read a book recently about an early 20th century Arctic expedition that went awry. In the book, it described the effect that polar winter has on people who live through it. The polar winter is utterly devoid of light. It is without life. The conditions are harsh and totally uninhabitable. Hear this description from 1897 by medical doctor Frederick Cook, who was aboard the Belgian ship Belgica, as it spent 70 days in this total darkness. The long night with its potential capacity for tragedy makes a madhouse of every polar camp. Here men love and hate each other in a passion which defies description. Murder, suicide, starvation, insanity, icy death, and all the acts of the devil become regular mental pictures. Darkness drives men mad. Isolation drives men mad. Thirst, hunger, pain drives men mad. What are all the descriptions that are used for hell? These. Hell will be utter madness, yet with full comprehension and soundness of mind at the same time. What we do not realize is that everything good on this earth comes from the blessed presence of God. A smile, a laugh, colors, food, even those things we abuse, illicit substances, sex, so on. They're, they're parts of the good creation that get misused for the wrong purposes, but they're part of the good creation of the earth that God has made. In hell, there will be no good gifts to use for wrong purposes. There will be nothing good. I don't understand it. I don't understand what's that, what that's like. I can't comprehend it. But what I know is that in hell there will be an eternal physical separation from God, from everything that is good, and there will be a complete absence from any possible hope of relief. It will never end, and the person who is experiencing it will be fully aware of that. No false hopes, 
No self-delusions, only utter, complete awareness of the holiness of God in his wrath, knowing that one will never taste again a cool drip of water for a parched tongue. You will never get to plop down on your bed at night after a long, hard day, endless toil, endless pain, without the slightest hint of relief. If you're not uncomfortable... In some form or fashion right now, then you are either asleep or you aren't listening. Because we can't possibly hear this description and be unmoved. We want to run from it. We want to cry over it. And this is the reality that many people are going to face. And this is one of the hardest things for us. We have people we know, people we think of that we love, that we do not want to imagine facing this destiny. I feel that. But I also know that God is good. God is just. Christ willingly experienced the full wrath of God for the sins of mankind. He subjected himself to this very thing which he did not have to do. And he would not do unless it were good and necessary. We have to root ourselves in all of the truths that we've been discussing this morning when we ponder hell. And then we remember that the opportunity for salvation remains for those who are yet on this earth. And this is the part of the message that lifts my, whole, my soul to preach. Verse 43, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. There is a hope for a future that is not judgment. Christian, we have been spared this unthinkable torment. Not because of anything we've done, but because of the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ that God has granted to us. We owe our lives to Christ. This depiction of hell should make us tremble and weep, and it should make us rejoice, for the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cleanse us so that we might be able to be in his infinitely holy presence yet again. And we get to be eternally with him in his presence to bless. An eternal blessing and joy in that place. There will be no weeping and gnashing of teeth. In that place, there will be no need for sun because the glory and the radiance of God will cast out all darkness and the madness that it brings. In that place, we will never thirst and we will never hunger because we will always perfectly have what we need. In that place, sin will be no more. In that place, we'll only use God's good gifts to his glory and we will never distort them again. In that place, we will never face an enemy. There will be no opposition. There will be no condemnation. We will never have a despairing thought. We will never be outcasts. We will always be accepted in that place. In that place, death will be no more. In that place, he will be our God and we will be his people forever. In that place, we'll never be bored. 
but rather will think eternity is not enough time to enjoy all of this goodness. This is what awaits us if we've placed our hope and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. If you've not yet trusted in Christ Jesus, I plead with you by the power of God that you would think about what has been shared here this morning. This is real. You sit right now in your sins and the guilt of every little thing you've ever done is on your head. And you've separated yourself from the glorious eternal God of the universe. If you died this instance, this unthinkable torment is your future. But you still have breath in your lungs today. That is a mercy from God. Do not forsake it. There is no better time to ask for God's forgiveness and to turn to his son than right now. And when you do, you immediately pass from death to life. When we stand before the judgment seat of God and we will hear the things that we did wrong, we don't have to make up excuses. We don't have to try and cover for ourselves. We don't have to rationalize. We can point to Jesus and say, He has covered it all. We don't have to cover one iota of it. Jesus has covered it all. He said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. I love that. That man had no time to do anything good apart from have faith in Jesus Christ. And he was saved. And he entered into this paradise. That's the forgiving, gracious God that we serve who sent his one and only son to die on the cross for our sins so that we wouldn't have to experience this terrifying future and so that we would enjoy all the eternal blessings that he has to give. Pray with me if you would. Heavenly Father, these are things that are too weighty for us your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Those aren't cliches. They are real. Like children who can't understand everything their parents say, our capacities are limited. We aren't you, God, but we do know you are good. We do know you are just, and we thank you for your love and justice. And Lord, above all else, we thank you for the extension of grace through your Son, Jesus Christ. None of us deserve that offer, yet you have offered it, and you say that those who will be saved by Christ are as innumerable as the sand on the sea or the stars in heaven that can't be counted. You aren't stingy with your mercy. And so, Father, we pray that you stir our hearts in affection for you. You help us to comprehend justice in light of who you are and what you say justice is and Lord we pray that more and more people would hear the good news of Jesus Christ and would turn and repent and I pray this morning if there's someone sitting in this room whose mind and conscience has been pricked that you would send your spirit and that you would help them turn and that we could all rejoice knowing that there is another brother and sister in the kingdom of heaven 
Thank you, Father, that you've given us your word, challenging things and easy things altogether. We ask that you continue to meet with us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell, given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.